From the Shumway Theater in downtown Rockford, this is the Guilty Pleasures Podcast, presented by Rockford Writers Guild. Here's your host, Connie Coons. Thank you, Jesse. Hi, everyone. It is Connie Coons, and you are listening to the Guilty Pleasures Podcast. It is still season one, but it's episode 24, and it is our June podcast. And we have with us in the Shumway studio, Ms. Molly McNett. Hi, Molly. Hi, Connie. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you. All right. Before we begin, is there anything you'd like to let your listeners know about this story? Any warning, any content warning, anything like that? Hmm. Well, it does involve young girls. I don't think there's anything that is off limits for young girls to hear, but it's not a cheery story all the way through. So if you're... If you want that kind of content, this might not be the one to listen to today. Okay. Thank you so much. Let's go. Catalog sales. Our parents divorced when I was nine and my sister Melcy was 11. That was the year Melcy and I moved to town with my mom and spent weekends with my dad in our old house in the country. While we were there, he would sometimes go out to do chores or errands or something, and I used that time to snoop around. At first, I only found a few things that I'd never noticed when we lived there full time. There was an enema two-pack in the bathroom with only one of the two left. And the bedroom closet that used to be my mom's was entirely full of angel soft toilet tissue, all the way up to the bar you were supposed to hang clothes on. That was funny to look at, but since my dad was a notorious cheapskate, not mysterious or anything. Then one day I looked through his roll top desk and found a US passport. This was strange for a couple of reasons. First, it was hard to imagine my dad going to another country. His brother, Ron, had been a foreign exchange student back when they were in high school, and my dad always said, Ron means well, but he don't have a brain in his skull. Uncle Ron had wanted to go to Europe, but he got sent to Africa instead and came back weighing 130, which is actually not very much for a tall person. My dad would bring that up at Thanksgiving, and Uncle Ron would say, well, it was something different anyway, and dad would repeat, something different and roll his eyes at us. Also, there was the money. According to Melcy, it was why our parents divorced. Before the divorce, my dad used to own a farm. Afterward, someone else owned it, and he cash-rented from that person. My mom used to own the little dancer studio in town, but after the divorce, she just taught there, so it was kind of the same thing, except that my mom liked to spend money. My dad didn't. You wouldn't think of my dad going on vacation, unless it was a place you could camp and maybe catch your own fish. I had the feeling if I kept snooping, I'd find something else, and pretty soon I did. A phone bill stuffed between some papers on his roll-top desk. $262, that's a lot for long distance, right? Melcy was in the kitchen making frosting, which was always the first thing she did when she was unsupervised. She liked to eat it straight from the bowl. Underneath the phone bill was a Farm and Fleet sale flyer. Huffy bikes for $65, I yelled to Melcy. Rollerblades, 48 That's too expensive, she said. You can get them for 40 some places. Which can you get for 40 the bikes? Under the sale flyer was a soft cover catalog with a row of black and white pictures on it. It looked like a junior high yearbook. 
It was folded back to one page, and a few pictures were circled in red pen. Number 45902 Cherry, it said under one picture. Age, 19. I am pleasant, friendly. I enjoy cooking, dancing, and singing in a band. Seeking marriage with family, values, man, and loving with responsibility. I looked at the phone bill again. Two calls on the bill to Manila, the Philippines. Dad's going to the Philippines, I yelled. Melcy ran into the room, and we started flipping through the catalog. There was more than one woman circled. Some had their hair pinned up with flowers on one side. Melcy grabbed the magazine. I had it first. Stop, Tammy, it'll rip. I let go and read over her shoulder. Some of the descriptions said the girls like to cook or clean house. The word pleasant was in two of the ads my dad had circled. I thought about that. My mom was many things, but she wasn't really pleasant. On some days, it seemed to me that she argued with almost everything anyone said. The girls my dad had circled were 19, 18, and 23. How old's dad, I asked. 46. Melcy was turning the pages fast so that I could only read parts of the entries. I saw a girl who looked about my age wearing a green plaid skirt with some kind of sweatpants under it instead of tights and a tan striped top that looked like a tennis uniform. Her hair was long and tangled. She was missing a tooth in front, but her smile was wide and proud as if she considered this a good feature. Looking for some companion to write letters, it said. Wait, I said. That one wants a pen pal. I liked the idea of a foreign pen pal. If I wrote this one, I would ask why she wore sweatpants under her skirt and why she didn't match a solid color with the plaid instead of stripes. Was it the fashion there? You think you can get a pen pal from the same place Dad is getting a girlfriend? No, I said, though I wasn't sure why I couldn't. We closed the roll-top desk with the phone bill and catalog between the junk mail the way we found it. Then we went outside to feed the horses. My mom and dad used to ride together, but not anymore, so the horses just grazed all summer and got very fat. Lately, their manes always had burrs in them. We tried to throw at the same time so they wouldn't fight, but it never worked. The brown horse would follow the black from one pile to the other, pushing him away. The black horse hardly got to eat, but neither did the brown one. He was so busy defending both the piles. Melcy and I stood there watching them, thinking about our dad and the catalog and wondering exactly what to make of it. Maybe he wants to do something different, said Melcy. The family Uncle Ron had stayed with in Africa ate only balls of raw dough, and they all washed with just one sponge. One of these reasons was why he got worms. After Uncle Ron got home, the father of the family kept writing letters asking Ron to send him a car. Every Christmas, my dad would read Uncle Ron's Christmas cards out loud until he got to the one that said, Joyous Noel, I am still awaiting my car. Everybody would laugh and laugh. When I first heard this, I was pretty little, and I pictured Uncle Ron putting stamps over the windshield of his car and parking it on a street corner next to the out-of-town mailbox. I thought you would have to cover the whole windshield, maybe the entire car, with stamps. But he actually never sent it. We went inside and finished the frosting and then drank some water because eating straight frosting makes you very thirsty. 
And all that time, we tried to think about how we could get more information about the catalog and the pictures and whether we should say anything. And Melcy decided that we should just ask my dad when he got back. So that is what she did, just like that. And he told us he had already gone to the Philippines. If we had done a better job of snooping, we would have seen the stamp on his passport. Then he cleared his throat and said that actually, see, the fact was that we would see her in person because she was coming here in a week. Her tourist visa would expire in three months. Sometime before that, they would get married. Next week, Melcy asked. She's coming next week. Don't tell your mother about the marriage part right away, he said. You know how she gets about things. So when our mother picked us up that Sunday, Melcy told her about dad and the woman and the visit, but she didn't say anything about the marriage, just like our dad had asked. It was raining and the defrost was broken on our van and our mom kept wiping a little spot with her hand and leaning forward to see out of it, muttering, unbelievable, in a low voice as the wipers clicked back and forth. Then she said, how old is she? 23, I said. At the same time, Melcy said, we don't know. Then she shot me a look. She dresses cheap, said Melcy. I bet, my mom snapped. So do we, I whispered to Melcy. Melcy just clucked her tongue, but she knew it was true. Ever since the divorce, there was a lot of economizing on everything. We didn't get an allowance anymore, and my mom drove an old car that needed a new muffler and sometimes broke down so that we had to get rides from our Aunt Becky. And the piping on our couch ripped out, and we just cut it off with scissors instead of buying a new couch or even a slipcover which my dad told my mom was too expensive. That was how their fights used to start before the divorce. She got piles of catalogs in the mail. She would show him something she wanted, and he would say it was too expensive, and she'd say, but look, it's the most beautiful thing. Have you ever seen a blue so bright and cheery like that? Or it's lined, it's loaded, it's so well made, but he would just repeat, it's too expensive. A lot of times she bought it anyway, and he'd say she had a problem with money. Sometimes back then, I would think he was just being mean to her. But lately, I thought it might be true. She didn't have a visa card since the divorce, but the UPS truck came at least once a week to our house in town. A lot of times she'd blow through her checking and have to return what she bought. Then my dad started bringing cash instead of his usual child support checks. They would sit together at the table, and he would divide the cash into envelopes for each category of spending. Food, clothing, propane, and my dad would go through it with her. You see? You see? And she would nod, although usually her eyes would be glazed over, or she'd be chewing on a nail or shaking a foot or something. Once after they had been doing this a few months, my mom took the cash from two envelopes at once, and we went shopping for school clothes. But then she saw a purse she wanted to buy. She kind of collected purses. And we only had enough money left for Cokes and a Cinnabon, split between the three of us. The next month, we got lucky, and she bought us Abercrombie shirts and melon and blueberry with bell sleeves. Then she had to go to my dad for more money before the month was over. After that, 
My dad took over buying clothes for Melcy and me. What this meant was goodwill boxes, the kind you get when they are trying to clear their stock and you get all you can cram into a box for $2. Let's just say they weren't the kind of things my mom used to get us. The actual boxes you filled up at the box sales were the ones that people had donated stuff in, and they usually said things like garage sale or junk on the side. Some of the clothes were junk. They smelled like mothballs and were worn looking or out of style. But to tell you the truth, I didn't mind it. I had a best friend, Jill, and two other friends, Madeline and another Jill, and when they came over, we'd try on the worst-looking things like pink lycra tights that were pilled from the dryer and striped knit caps, the kind with the tassel down to your knees. And then we'd top it off with some protective goggles or cheater reading glasses I'd tucked in the box when my dad wasn't looking. When we looked truly obnoxious, we'd put whole packs of gum in our mouths at one time and walk to the dollar store and ask the clerk the price of one thing after another. How much is this? A dollar. What about this one? I'm sorry, I can't hardly understand you. What's the cost? Well, everything's a dollar, so how much is this then? This is how we were, doing stupid things like that. We didn't care about what we looked like. Although one time, when my best friend Jill and I were standing in our bathroom mirror, trying on some herbicide caps, she said, we're not raving beauties, you know. That surprised me. Not where Jill was concerned, because her teeth stuck out in every direction like someone had squeezed her head really hard, and she had huge octagon glasses like her mother's, only her mother's were on a chain. But when I looked at myself, my teeth and face looked normal and nice enough. All of this was different from Melcy. Her year was seventh grade, and that was when people divided up in a much more permanent way. Melcy and her friends, Terry, Beth, and Lisa, were the most popular group. They dressed in a very specific way, nothing like what we got from the Goodwill boxes. But since my dad had taken over, that was almost all we'd been getting. Melcy's wide leg jeans from last year were a size too small, and when wide legs get short, you can't pretend they're capri pants or anything. When you sit down, your socks show, and sometimes part of your bare leg if you don't wear knee socks. My dad even noticed this was happening and brought a new pair of jeans on clearance at Farm and Fleet. Melcy said she wouldn't wear those because they smelled like tires. The waist was high, too, like old women's jeans, which was the real reason she wouldn't wear them. He got us tennis shoes at the same Farm and Fleet sale, but Melcy said ladies' walkers on the tongue, which she said was mortifying. Whenever we left the house, she wore her stacked platforms, which were half a size too small. At the end of the day, her pinky toes would be very red and squished looking. When you wear jeans or shoes that are too small, you can get a pinched feeling about everything. And that's how she was to be around. She was acting different with everybody, even her own friends. She never invited them over or went bike riding or downtown with them like she used to. Still, when she was in a mood to talk, that was who she talked about. I knew Cheryl had a new dog and that Beth was using pepper polish to stop biting her nails and that Terry wanted to switch to the flute, but the band director said Terry had more of a clarinet personality and Terry's mother had read him the riot act and now Terry had a new flute, the most expensive kind. Melcy and I were not in band. So I was surprised when Melcy said that she was not going to tell any of her friends about my dad and his new girlfriend from the Philippines. We started talking about this that same Sunday night when we were cleaning up from dinner. I was drying, and Melcy was squirting dishwashing soap right on the brush and scrubbing the plates with it, 
which would get you in trouble at my dad's place. Why would I want to? It makes him look like a pervert, Melsey said. Exactly, my mother agreed. She was sitting at the table with her feet up, ashing her cigarettes on a dinner plate. I thought about the word pervert and how what my dad was doing was strange, but not the same as being a peeping Tom or anything. And without thinking, I said, but he is going to marry her. Melsey cupped her forehead with her palm. Jesus, she said. He's going to marry her? My mom's voice got very high when she said marry. Then she started to cry. We quit the dishes and sat on either side of her. Melsey lifted one of her curls out of the cigarette plate and rubbed it off with a napkin. I didn't really think about my mom loving my dad too often. Just the weekend before when she was dropping us off, he'd come down the sidewalk in a tight flannel shirt and black buckle boots and she'd said, Good Lord, will you look at that? He had gained weight since the divorce. But the truth is, he had always been kind of fat. That didn't seem to matter to my mom anymore. It surprised me, but I understood it too. When I pictured them sitting there at our table together while they did the envelopes, or the way he would come into town to replace the dryer vent or caulk the tub, it seemed like we all had a life together, even though we didn't stay overnight in the same place. She took a Kleenex and emptied one nostril very loudly, then switched to the other. When this was done, she said, Promise not to tell anyone at school about this, like Melsey was saying. Of course not, said Melsey. I was not good at keeping secrets. Even secrets I didn't want to tell, I usually ended up telling without thinking about it. Especially things I was supposed to keep, but I wasn't exactly sure why I had to. Tammy, said Melsey. Tammy, said my mom. Of course, as soon as I promised, my mom proceeded to get on the phone and tell everyone who would listen while Melsey and I went back to the dishes. My mom hadn't washed anything all weekend, and she used about 10 glasses and coffee mugs per day because she was always pouring coffee and forgetting where she'd put it. Melsey and I kept washing, going and going, and my mom kept on talking. When all of the people she called got busy and had to go, she called a catalog company to try to return some boots she'd bought a long time ago. You never explicitly stated I couldn't wear them outside, she kept saying tracing the words explicitly stated on a piece of scratch paper. When are you going to tell people? I asked Melsey. Never, okay? It's embarrassing. You'll have to say something sometime, I said. Melsey dropped the skillet she was washing into the sink. Look, Tam, she said, maybe you don't care what people think, but I do. I care what people think. No, you don't. You and your friends don't take anything seriously. Was that true? Just Friday, while we were playing bombardment in gym, we decided to fall down when we got hit with the ball, like we were at some World War II reenactment, and that was exactly what the gym teacher had told us, that we would have to sit out until we could take things more seriously. Still, it made me mad when Melsey said it, as if we didn't matter just because we were funny. At least I can tell my friends things, I said. At least we have fun. Melsey peeled off her dishwashing gloves and whipped them into the sink, then raised the dawn in one hand like she wanted to throw it at me, with her mouth all bunched up. Instead, she turned and slammed the bottle into the sink and then ran out of the room. The plastic cracked on the edge of the skillet, 
and the soap oozed out of the crack, down over the skillet, and into the drain. My mom raised her eyebrows at me, and I shrugged. That was how Melsey got sometimes. For no reason, she'd start yelling at you or crying, and it could happen really fast. The next time you saw her, it would be like none of it ever happened. Which was how it was that night. After the dishes and the phone calls were finished, we got ready for bed. My mom followed us to the bathroom like she always did to check our dental hygiene. She usually did bar work at the same time, using the bathroom counter, but not tonight. She just looked in the mirror the whole time with her eyes wide and sad, sighing and drumming her fingernails on the counter. She was a nail biter, we all were, but lately she had been growing them out, and you could see quite a bit of white on the ends. They made a strong click when she drummed them. Suddenly I felt irritated with her. Your hands are too dry, Mom, I said. You should use more lotion. <sighs> she sighed. I suppose, she said. And she drew me in on one side and Melsey on the other and smooched us on the heads. What a day, women, she said. What a day. That Monday, they rotated our lunch hour so that mine overlapped with Melsey's by 15 minutes. Jill and Jill had different homerooms than me and Madeline, so lunch was the first time I could tell everyone about my dad and the girl. While we waited for hot lunch, I was watching the clock, thinking about how I could give some hints and have them guess and promise not to tell by the time Melsey and her friends came down the stairs. I had to be quick. If Melsey saw my face while I was talking about it, she'd know right away, and I knew she'd tell my mom. But Jill, the other Jill, and not my best friend, was telling a long story about her mother and how they'd gotten rear-ended that weekend. Jill's mother got rear-ended about once a month, and it was always the other driver's fault. It was like she was just this unlucky person that these bad drivers followed around on purpose like friends who try to slam you on the bumper cars or something. Anyway, Jill said her mom wanted to exchange insurance information with the pickup who rear-ended them even though there was no damage to either vehicle. And I was thinking that I'd say when she finished, I can't tell you what happened, but it's about my dad. When all of a sudden Madeline said, isn't that Melcy over there? There she was, about four tables over, sitting on the end of the bench with a space between her and Cheryl the size of three or four people. Melcy was facing Cheryl and Beth and Terry, but Cheryl and Beth and Terry were not facing Melcy. They were turned in the opposite direction, toward a girl I didn't recognize. The girl had a long brown coat on, and the others were listening to her talk and nodding and laughing. I wondered if this girl was new in school. She was the kind of person you would notice and know, even if she only just went to your school. Maybe it had something to do with the coat. It was tan suede with this trim around the cuffs and collar that was off-white and soft like a collie's fur. The girl's hair was long and blonde, and she kept throwing her head back and laughing with her knees pulled up to her chest, so her hair blended with a fur trim. Melsey was listening to this new girl, too, leaning in toward all of them with her chin stuck way up and laughing when the others did. It was not her real laugh. It was too loud, 
and it kept going after the other stopped for a second or two. When that happened, it made it really obvious how far she was sitting from them. It was like they never made room for her in the first place. And that wasn't the only thing that made her stick out. She was wearing the melon bell sleeve shirt that my mom had bought her at Abercrombie, but the sleeves were about two inches short of her wrists instead of down to her knuckles like they're supposed to be. Finally, she'd given in and worn her new farm and fleet jeans, but because the Abercrombie shirt was too small, it didn't quite come to her waist when she sat down, so you could see the label of the jeans entirely. She'd taken a black marker and crossed out the brand on the leather patch at the waist, and on her feet were those white ladies' walkers. Even though my dad had measured her, the farm and fleet jeans were short enough that you could see the gray reinforced heel of her gym sock just above her shoe. I didn't know Melcy was still friends with Terry and them, said Madeline. She isn't, said Jill. I felt sick to my stomach. We got to the front of the line and I was supposed to decide on taco salad or health plate and they both looked vomitous to me. And I stood there thinking of a comeback, like where does a person get off making comments if that person's teeth are sticking out in all directions and their glasses are butt ugly? But instead, I sat my tray next to Madeline, facing Melcy and her table. Jill and Jill sat across from us. I waited for somebody to tell me about what happened or when or who the other girl was, but nobody said anything. The other Jill kept talking, even though her story was finished, about her mother and the policemen and bad drivers in general, people on cell phones or eating or just sleep deprived, which was as dangerous as driving drunk. <laughs> on Saturdays, our mom drove us to our dad's for the weekend. Usually she went inside to talk for a minute or at least helped us with our suitcase. This week it was different. She dropped us all the way at the end of the driveway, then drove away, spinning out on the gravel without even waiting to see if anyone was there to get us. The door of the house opened and there was a girl waving and smiling at us. For a minute I was confused. It seemed like the girl must be the daughter of the bride I was expecting and that this daughter had been sent before the mother. Then my dad came out and took our suitcase and we followed him back inside. There was no other person there. So it was not a daughter that I had seen. It was her. 19 and 18 and 23 were the ages circled in dad's catalog. And all of those ages were very old compared to me and Melcy, while this girl didn't seem all that much older at all. I raised my eyebrows at Melcy, and she raised hers back at me. Melcy and Tam, Dad said, touching the girl's arm. This is Daisy. Sometimes when you first look at someone, they seem like they might be pretty, and then it is a relief to find that they bite their nails, for example. You can think, well, it's all fine, but it doesn't really count. Daisy was not like that. Everything about her was pretty. Her smile was pretty, and her face was pretty, and her hair was long and very pretty, and her clothes were pretty. 
I mean, they really were, not like teacher's clothes, because they sometimes have a pair of wide leg jeans or something that's stylish, but then they button their blouses all the way up to the neck, or they wear a pair of Birkenstocks with the wide legs, or they have their hair cut in a bob, so everything gets ruined. She was wearing a button-down white blouse and a lettuce-edged skirt that came just above the knee and a pair of tight brown boots with heels, a kind I had seen on a TV show once, but not yet on anybody at school. And her hair was so long and black and shiny, the kind that you wanted to ask permission to touch. The whole picture she made was perfect, like girls in magazines. In that same way, it was almost too much. You had to wonder what my dad thought about that. I could remember lots of shows I watched on TV where the man was very old or ugly, and he had a wife who looked young and beautiful. It always seemed ridiculous to me, like a musical where kids are singing the adult parts and you have to just imagine what the real characters might look like. But my dad didn't seem bothered. It was like he thought he deserved it or something. And Daisy was even prettier than my mom. My mom's body was very beautiful in a bony way, but her skin was so white that you could see veins and freckles all over it, and there were lines between her eyes when she got mad or when she concentrated on something. Daisy's skin was smooth and tan, and you could see her breasts and her tight shirt the way boys like. Wouldn't all kinds of them be trying to ask her on a date? Then my dad announced that Daisy was making a big dinner for us with all Filipino food, and wouldn't it be interesting? He put his hand behind Daisy's back, down toward her bottom, and she smiled up at him. Suddenly, Melcy took off and ran up the stairs, and the three of us were left standing there. Daisy looked at my dad with a worried expression, and he just shook his head like this kind of thing happened all the time. Of course it did, but this time was different. It wasn't exactly fun for me either. On the other hand, when someone is so pretty, you can't help it. You want them to like you. Do you need help? I asked Daisy, with the cooking? She patted my head, and because she wasn't taller than me, she had to reach up to do it. It gave me a warm shiver. Nice, she said to my dad. She's a good girl, he nodded, a good help. Daisy smiled at me. It's finished, she said. Just wait for cooking. I realized that my hair was pulled straight back and probably looked greasy, my mom's doing laundry, I said. That's why I have sweats on. Smiling back at her made me feel even uglier, like the smile was the only thing I had going for me. My dad pulled Daisy into him and brushed his lips against the top of her head, and she giggled a little, and then I really wanted to run up the stairs, too. I was not an idiot, and I knew what married and engaged people did, but it just seemed crazy to me that someone like her would let an old, ugly guy touch her on the bottom or take her clothes off. My eyes started to mist up a little. I felt uncomfortable there in the same house that used to be my house, and I wanted to go back to my mom's or get away from there. Do we have chores? I asked my dad. He handed me a bag with some old bones in it, and I went out to the barn and dumped them in the old pie tin for the barn cats. It felt better to be outside, and even though it was very cold, I stood there wasting time. The only cat that came was an old gray tom with one eye matted shut. He started in on a bone, looking up to cough and hiss at me. 
dummy, I told him. I'm the one who gave you that. I got more hay for the horses, and when I was done, I brought some to the cows, too, just for an excuse to be outside longer. A couple of them walked over and started eating, but most of them just stared at me, too dumb to push their way in or even smell where the hay was. Cows are like that. Every time they see you, they'll stand and stare like it's the very first time they've encountered such a specimen. By that time, my hands and nose were freezing off, and I knew I'd better go inside to see if Melcy was okay. I found her upstairs, standing in my mom and dad's room, only it didn't look like that room anymore. It was like a dressing room or something. There were clothes everywhere, new clothes, girls' clothes, it looked like, in our size, good clothes with their tags still on. They were on the bed, on the dresser, hanging in the closet where the toilet paper used to be. There were sweaters and twin sets and tanks and belts, black side shoes and black boots, button-down shirts in all colors, bright orange, blue, pink, lemon yellow, three pairs of hip-slung jeans, and one was even dirty wash, and right in the middle of the closet, hanging by itself, was a suede coat with fur on the hem and the cuffs, just like the new girl had at school. Who is it for? I asked. I suppose for a second I thought it might be for us. I had a reoccurring dream like that when I was little, only it was about dolls. Her, said Melcy, who do you think? She stood in the middle of the braided rug in her training bra, zipping up a pair of jeans. The hem spilled onto the floor a little like it was supposed to, and the waist was so low that her butt crack almost showed in the back. They were perfect. Did she say you could? I asked. Dad paid for them. She pulled a cow neck sweater over her head and examined herself in the mirror. Melcy's hair was long and naturally curly like my mom's, but it was blonde, which looked glamorous with the light blue of the sweater. Maybe she bought it herself, I said. Just because she's from a poor country doesn't mean that she's poor. That's a generalization. She snorted. That explains why she married an old fat guy. I couldn't think of a comeback. I knew what she said was true, and it made me feel stupid. I had stood downstairs, looking at Daisy and my dad together, wondering why they were together, when the answer was obvious. He had more money than she did. He was fat, she was beautiful, and wanted nice things. That was probably what all those girls in the catalog wanted. But how would Daisy even know it was in style anyway if she was from a poor country like that? Was it from TV? Did they have TV there? One thing I knew for sure was that I didn't like it. I felt like one of the cows who didn't even notice there was food around and other cows were eating first, and I got that feeling like I wanted to pick up something and smash it. Crap, I said. What's the matter with you, Tam? Try something on. Melcy took the coat off its hanger and tossed it in my lap. I lifted the tag out of the sleeve. Two hundred forty-nine ninety-five. I can't put this on, I said. There's hay in my hair. Suit yourself. I put the suede against my face. It was softer than anything, softer than skin. It wasn't fake, for sure. There was a deep smell to it, like rich food. And the trim was so light next to it, 
as light and fluffy looking as that girl and her little laugh and her blonde hair. Melsey took an eye pencil and a lipstick from Daisy's kit and sat next to me on the bed. Close your eyes. She took the pencil and drew around my lids. Then she colored in my lips in dark red and blotted them with a Kleenex. Her face had that mentholated smell from the Noxema base, and up close, you could see the tiny white hairs on her face coated over in orangey-brown. You're all set, she said. Now try something on. There's tags on these, I said. We should at least wait until the tags are off. Melcy rummaged under some of the pants and held up a camisole set. No tags, she said, waving it. Maybe she used them already, hubba hubba. You're weird, I said. But when I took them from her, they felt very soft and silky, and the fabric was my favorite color, teal. I stood up and pulled off my sweats and my underwear and my T-shirt and pulled the camisole over my head. It was only a little too big, and the panties fit. I went to stand at the full-length mirror next to Melcy. It's not like I never had makeup on before, but this time my eyes seemed like eyes from magazines, and when I half shut them, looking sideways, letting my mouth open a little, I felt something, a hope, and a strangeness. Maybe it started because there was something sexy in the outfit that made it look like I had breasts, though that was more the design of the fabric because there were little starbursts where the nipples were, and I was running my hands over it, moving and looking in the mirror, and the fabric was so smooth and shiny, I kept going, running my hands over it. What's the matter? Are you in love with yourself or what? Melcy said. My face felt hot. Shut up, I said. Are you in love with yourself? That's what I want to know. Good comeback. Melcy, Tam, Dad yelled, dinner. I stepped out of the panties, pulled off the camisole top, and put them both in the top drawer of the dresser. And when I was done putting my sweats on, I started hanging up all the other clothes, the colored blouses, all the jeans, the sweaters, the stuff that was not on hangers I piled on top of the dresser in the closet. Then I picked up the suede coat and put it on one of my mom's padded pink silk hangers and buttoned the top button. I hung it all the way in the back of the closet so you couldn't even see it there, the way you do with a shirt you don't have money for and don't want anyone else to get. Melcy had put her hair up and was pulling little curls out along the nape of her neck. I shoved the slides and shoes and boots in the bottom of the closet and shut the door. Then I ran to the bathroom and scrubbed my face with dial soap very fast. There was a brown smudge under one eye that didn't come off all the way, but you couldn't tell unless you were very close. When I came back through the bedroom, Melcy was still standing there in the clothes, looking in the mirror. Hurry, I said. What if they come up? Go ahead. I ran down by myself, and there were Dad and Daisy sitting at the table. Where's your sister? asked Dad. Bathroom. Daisy served me and Dad. This is called Pantsit, said Dad, beaming. Pond seat, she corrected him. I felt embarrassed, even though I didn't know how to pronounce it either. It was clear noodles with pieces of meat and vegetable. There was also a dish of pork with pineapple rings on top of it and a sweet-smelling soup. Then we could hear Melcy clicking down the stairs in Daisy's new Italian slides, 
clickety-clickety-click. She came in wearing Daisy's jeans and Daisy's blue sweater with the tags tucked inside the neck. Nice war paint, Kimosabe, Dad said. Melsi sat down in the empty chair. Soup, Tam, said Daisy. Thank you, I said. I had not rinsed the soap well enough, and my face felt tight. And soup for Melsi, she said. Daisy didn't look at Melsi when she served her, but she had noticed the outfit. She was sitting stiffly on the edge of her chair, and after she gave Melsi the soup, she started blinking fast, blinking and looking away into the corner like there was dust blowing in her face. We ate. My dad took seconds, and Daisy brought him another beer. Melsi went to the fridge, added more ice to her lemonade, and sat down again. Dad looked right at her and kept eating. He wasn't going to notice the outfit. He ate, and he looked up with his jaw hanging open a little. His tongue was kind of big, and when he got tired or relaxed, sometimes it hung over his bottom lip and made him look slow. You could just picture him as a fat teacher that Daisy might make fun of with her popular friends at school, the same way my mom made fun of him coming down the lane. It made you wonder if he bought my mom new things too when he first met her. And if you thought about it, he was the one with the money problem. He had the most expensive taste of all, people who liked beautiful things. Melsi lifted the soup to her mouth and drank it, the way we'd seen Daisy do. She had a tiny smile on her lips, and I could guess what she was thinking. There were three or four pairs of jeans to spare, and even more sweaters and shoes. She could slip some things into her suitcase. Maybe there would even be enough to last the week. The thing was, it was only partly about the clothes, and Melsi didn't get that and that made her seem pitiful or something. It made me want to say something to hurt her. It won't make a difference, I said. She stopped smiling. What do you mean? I put some pineapple in my mouth, a whole ring at one time. They won't notice, I said. What do you mean, Tam, she said. Who are you talking about? I felt bad then. I wanted her to yell at me or have one of her fits where she ran out of the room, but she didn't. She wasn't even looking at me, but I knew how she felt. Terrible. Like dirt. I knew, because when you have a sister, it's like what happens to her happens to you. But it was not too late for me. I would be the right size next year, and maybe I would be friends with Daisy by then, Maybe she would let me borrow whatever I wanted. So far, though, she didn't seem very happy about the idea. I didn't blame her. If they were my new clothes, I wouldn't want to lend them to anyone. Even now, when I thought about that coat hanging on our new hall tree at my mom's or on the hook at my locker at school, I did not like the thought of returning it. A ladybug landed on the lampshade, fanned its tail, and drew it in again. How do we get these damn things, my dad said. It's the middle of winter. I want more pineapple, I said. I had taken three slices of the pineapple already, and I knew I had finished it. My right eyelid was getting some sort of tick. 
It fluttered, and I pressed my palm over it. There is no pineapple no more, Daisy said. Her voice was tired-sounding, like this was an old routine for me to ask for what I wanted and for her to get it for me. Oh, Molly. That was beautiful. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Now may I ask you a bunch of questions. Okay. okay. Bring them on. All right, here we go. Sister culture is pretty heavy in this story. Yes. And I'm wondering if you would share your own sister culture. Well, I have a sister, um, and she's 14 months younger than I am. So we, and we also, we, we grew up in the country, um, so we were sort of best friends and sisters. We were playmates, you know, and um, we remain close to this day. So I think there's a line in there, what happens to her happens to you. If you have a sister, what happens to her happens to you. I think that that I do, uh, I did get from my relationship with my sister. Both so I do feel bad. that. Um, yes, absolutely, yeah. When mm-hmm. you say you grew up in the country, does that mean, I know what it means, but tell our listeners what the country means to you. Uh, um, well, I, I grew up on a farm, a family farm between um, Oregon and Byron, Illinois, and I still live there, actually, to this day. Could you tell us what's on that farm in terms of animal spirits? Cattle, <laughs> some horses. So there, those things appear in the stories. I, I, myself, I have chickens, but I, we never uh, kept them growing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some ducks, too. Horses, cattle, ducks, chickens. Now, uh-huh. anything else? Um, well, you know, no, not really. Aside from domestic, okay, dogs and cats and things. Do you have animal presence when you are writing? Oh. Yes, well, we have a great cat who likes to walk over the keyboards. <laughs> and, um, you know, I always feel like he really likes to be involved with whatever it is we're doing. So I, I feel like, you know, sometimes I do feel like he's impeding me mm-hmm. when that happens. But it's fun to see that long string of nonsense, you mm-hmm. know, w- within the middle of a story. I've yeah. read your book, and there's a strong animal presence throughout. Uh, next week, we're going yeah. to read Ozzy the Burrow. Right. Uh, I'm wondering if that is a conscious, intentional thing for you to include animals and their presence and their spirit and the opinion that the characters have of them. Is that something that you do every time or something? Not always, but I think it was part of my growing up and a lot of these stories have young protagonists in them. And so that sort of just there growing up sort of evokes that for me. The the animals were just part of my upbringing. Mm-hmm. And also watching them, they're not always kind to each other, you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a lot of cruelty that you see. Inside and, the animal yeah, kingdom? Yeah, that's right. And so, I mean, it isn't, it's, it's not as bad as human cruelty in some ways, you know, because it's not conscious we have the ability to step back from it Mm -hmm. but you know you feel like oh well that's within me in some visceral way you know so it's a it's always made me uncomfortable I I love that I love this kind of uncomfort I want to ask you if you notice people who don't have a strong animal presence in their lives and if you kind of wish they did or I'm not here to ask if you're judging people because they don't have a goldfish. I'm wondering if you notice the difference between people who incorporate animals into their life versus those who don't. 
Oh, well, I judge people who don't like my dog. <laughs> Is her name Sophie? I, I think I've seen her. love me, love my dog kind of person. Mm-hmm. So, no, I'm just joking, of course, <laughs> I don't. But, you know, you do notice. I, I don't know. I mean, it's just that some people do. Maybe it's how you grow up or mm-hmm. maybe it's something you're born with. But some people do seem to need animals around them and rely on them and some don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I want to talk about you at ages 9 and 11. Mm, What were you like at ages 9 and 11? Well, I think a lot of that comes out in this story. I was really, you know, sort of, I had a rich interior life. I think a lot of my life was sort of lived inside my head. Maybe that's the case with some kids. You don't really think that other people notice what you're doing or what's going on in your head, you know. I have to ask, I don't mean to interrupt, but you said what's going on in your head. Did your family, were they cognizant of how much you had going on in your head as an observer and writer-to-be at such a young age? Oh, no. I was just thought to be uh, sort of um, um, airheaded, you know? No. I'm still thought to be that. I, I am really kind of. I'm the okay. sort of person who loses keys and misplaces things and... Yeah, I think I had a, when I was in college, I had an apartment with two friends of mine, and I think I made six sets of keys over the <laughs> year that I stayed in that apartment. In one year? Yeah. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. We'll go back to 9 and 12 and tell us a little bit more about what you were like. Well, I think those are painful ages, you know, that you start to become socially aware, conscious of that hierarchy. I think that... Uh, that comes out in that story, you know, mm-hmm. those in girls for girls that hits a little harder than for boys, I think, mm-hmm. you know, those social interactions. So I do remember that. I remember, um, you know, being upset about that, who, who was hanging out with whom and all of those, you know, playground interactions, you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't, I, I don't feel like it was a very happy time of life, although I had a really nice family. Um, they're great, you know, my parents and, and my sister, you know, I had a warm family life, supportive family life, nothing at all like that story. But but um, the social life was fraught mm-hmm. for me. Okay. Yeah. How interesting. What was it like for you as a mother to have a 9-year-old and an 11-year-old, both oh. a daughter and a son? Yeah, they did. I think that they they fared so much better than I did, <laughs> for whatever reasons. You know, they're to me. Um, maybe it's just because I don't want to believe that they would go through anything like that. But I just feel like they're gregarious, kind of happy people. You know, mm-hmm. they know who they are, and they don't seem to want to be someone else or to be elsewhere. You know. And that wasn't the case for me. Were you raised you know? by artists like your children are? Oh, no. Um, my dad and mom were school teachers, mm-hmm. and um, my dad was also a farmer, so he would go to school. You know, he would do his chores before school and yeah. after school. And um, my mom helped out with that, doing the books for the farm and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah. Very so, interesting. Yeah. I want to ask about you at the age of the mail order bride. What were your interests at that time? Oh, so are you saying... 1819? Mm-hmm. Oh, gee. <laughs> this makes me think that, you know, like uh, considering her as like a fully fleshed human being mm-hmm. is something I maybe should have done. Oh, you know what I mean? It's okay. Like I, when I wrote that story, I, I thought of it from the, the 
the girl's point of view, from the, from the younger girl's point of view. And so I didn't, you know, I don't think they really think of her as a, as a person quite yet in that story. I mean, maybe they will get to know her mm-hmm. eventually, but I don't think they think about her, her life, you know, before she came, her needs or anything. She's just there, mm-hmm. this sort of physical presence and the, and the presence of the clothes and so on, mm-hmm. you know? So I don't know how to answer your question, oh, although a, perhaps I should, you no, know? No, you answered it beautifully. And it, asked, it makes me want to ask you another question about this, these women, the mother says she refers to the nine and the eleven-year-olds as women. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. The bride is obviously a woman. When is the first time somebody called you a woman and it wasn't quite appropriate? Oh, what a day, women! She says. Oh uh, yeah. Dog. Such a great line. Yeah, I I think I thought that was a funny line, but but I think there, you know, I mean, I think I was just making myself laugh with that that mm-hmm. that would be funny that she would call them women, but I also um. I think, you know, they're they're sort of on this little ship together, you know, like it's just the mother and the daughters and they're in it together, you mm-hmm. know, like, um, so that makes them grow up a little faster. She's, she's pulling them in, like, mm-hmm. you're, you're my right hand people now, you know? Yes. And um, so I think, I think that maybe, you know, maybe that's why she says women. Mm-hmm. I don't remember being called woman or uh, when that happened or if it happened early or later or any of those things you know I still actually feel like a girl you know (laughs) I'm I'm 51 years old and I feel like I'm you know like I still forget that you know Mm -hmm. like when people call me ma'am in the store or something I I, then I think oh yeah that's right I'm old now but I I don't feel like that I still Mm -hmm. have like childlike feelings Mm -hmm. you know I totally get that uh, can we talk about your fashion culture? Okay, sure. <laughs> uh, one of the first things I noticed about you when I met you a couple months ago is you wear bright colors. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you have a bright aura. You're a bright person. Um, and then you describe these colors with such great detail. Do you love clothes? No, not really. I'm kind of frumpy, you know? I don't really. I, I don't. I don't really. But... Um, I think I did at that age. At that mm-hmm. age, I was very interested in, in shopping and clothes and those things. But I think maybe f- more for what they might bring me. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to I wanted to be popular, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, then it became clear that I wasn't going to be. And it puzzled me. For what reason, you know? I felt so important, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in my own mind. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> and I just didn't understand why other people wouldn't find it the same way. So, you know... Um, I guess I thought about clothes as sort of a means to an end. Mm-hmm. They might be able to make me look a certain way or something like that. I mean, um, and so that's that's where the, all that sort of detail and fascination with them that that character has, that's not something I really have, but I did at that age, at a young age, mm-hmm. I did. Okay. I want yeah. to ask you about what your life was like when you were writing this story. Yeah, I had just finished uh, graduate school. So Mm -hmm. I have an MFA in writing and I had just finished that. Mm -hmm. But I I did that whole thing with them when my son was an infant and then one year old. And um, and so then that next year, I was home with him. So and during this time, my husband was bringing home the bacon. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Bless his heart. (laughs) And um, so, so I was home with my son during the 
time I was writing this story, and I remember it because it was so lonely. And I just worked so hard, and I, I, I kept working and working at it. I sent it away. It came back. Um, I got a note from this guy at the Atlantic. Um, some mm-hmm. people might know him. He's not there anymore, I don't think. See Michael Curtis. But he would write to writers, actually. He was one of those people. Well, you know, this doesn't really happen anymore, that you would send a story in and you'd get some notes back with Mm -hmm. it, including one thing he said to me, please double space your stories when you send them out. You know, what a kind and wonderful thing to say, Mm -hmm. trying to help me, you know. But he had advice on on the story. He said... Um, there's not much about the girls and their life at school. We don't really see that. Mm-hmm. And so that whole scene that I added, um, the whole scene about the, the, what, what she observes going on with her sister in, at the lunch table, mm-hmm. the, the sort of shift in her social position, mm-hmm. all of that came from those notes. Mm-hmm. And so, but, but really, it was mostly just rejection on that story and and just working it was so so lonely and i remember like you know through the winter what it's like being home with a young person you know like they're so delightful but at the same time you don't have anybody to talk to Mm -hmm. you know so um yeah it was just a year with just a year with my son which i look back and think oh what precious time you know Mm -hmm. but it was also a lonely time and without any expectation of anything happening with this story or anything. Then later, it got published and, you know, it was picked up in the Best American Non-Required Reading, mm-hmm. which is the, the Dave Eggers thing. And that was like the first time I ever had a story anthologized. So it, it ended up, it had a good ending. But I remember thinking... When it came out, oh, you can't tell from this, you know, like what a long slog that was Mm -hmm. and how depressed I was during parts of it Mm -hmm. and all that stuff. I think that's a good message, you know, like you just don't know when you're in the middle of working on something, you have no idea what will happen with that thing. You just have to keep yourself going and keep um, hoping for it, you know, because you don't, um, you know, it doesn't correspond you're feeling at the time mm-hmm. of hopelessness despair um you know discouragement at how the story is going it doesn't correspond with what with what will happen later okay. i love it but now do you do you feel the similar um uh, unsure of what's going to happen with when you're writing now oh or yeah you, really you don't oh, have yeah, a certain definitely. trajectory or confidence about what's going to happen no i'm all over the place i don't Okay. No, I don't. I mean, I'm sure there are some writers who do, but mm-hmm. I don't. Not with the way that I work, which mm-hmm. is really slowly. And you know, <laughs> I don't. I don't feel like oh, I know what's going to happen with this. When you say you work yeah. slowly, what does that mean for you? Because I know what slow means to me. You seem pretty focused and driven. Well, I just I haven't written for a year. I I've just now started to dabble again, but I I had to take a whole year off. Okay, can you tell us why? Well, this is because I was studying for yoga um, training, so I I I'm certified in Iyengar yoga, which is a really um, this is a very rigorous training program and certification program. So um, I I'm not a dabbler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whatever I'm doing, I'm kind of just thrown into that thing. So mm-hmm. if I'm writing all the time, the house is a mess. If, you know, and I'm also, whatever I'm doing, the other things suffer, Mm -hmm. right? So I, I just knew I couldn't do that. And 
write at the same time, and I didn't think I would pass the exam if I was writing too. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm trying to get a little balance in and try to bring it back in. Okay. Yeah. What's your favorite way to communicate with people? Is it through teaching yoga or teaching English, creative writing? Is it through writing and having them read your work? Is it from listening? Is it from partnerships? Do you have a favorite? That's a good question. I mean, you don't really communicate with people when you write. You know, there's that um, <clears throat> delay. <laughs> you write, but then they might not read it till years after you've actually written it. And then, but there's nothing like getting an email from someone who's read a story and then you feel this. It's just, um, yeah, that's almost otherworldly, that connection that you feel. You can't believe that you have this connection with someone, you know, that someone actually thought to, you know, was thoughtful enough to try to seek you out and tell you that they like something. That's really, that's the sweetest part of it to me. But I don't really feel like it's connection with people, you know, it's not like real human connection with people. So teaching does um, bring that to me. Not so much teaching fiction maybe, but teaching yoga does that, Mm -hmm. you know. And I, since I do it a couple times a week, that sort of keeps me out there. Okay. You know? What's the name of your studio? It's Pranayama Yoga Studio. That's on, on State Street by the, well, well, by your building and by Irish Rose. Pranayama. It's on yeah. State Street by Irish Rose. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what hundred block is it? I don't even know. I don't know Rock for that one. <laughs> well, it's by the Irish Rose, so it's people will find Irish it. It's by Irish Rose, right, and across from Bamboo, you know mm-hmm. where that is? Yeah. I had I had yeah. noticed the yoga studio until I met you, and now all oh, I see is that yeah, when I go by it. You see the little, the, we have a banner and everything, yeah, and beautiful. a nice bright yellow door. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we could take some pictures. Sure. All right. I'll hang upside down on uh, for you or stand on my head. I, I would love that. <laughs> I would love to put that out there on social media. I'll have you stand on your head. Well, Wouldn't that you, be fun? Well... I, I know how to teach you. Okay. Well, I'm a good student, but that would probably take a long time. I have to ask you, because we have to wrap up, what would you like your listeners to know? What would you like to say? What would you like to get off your chest? What did I forget to ask? This microphone belongs to you. Oh, boy, it's so wide open. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've been thinking, you know, it's not so separate what you do um, in life, like, I worried a lot when I was younger about writing like being such an important thing. And now I'm sort of, as I'm getting older, realizing it's sort of the way that you do everything that's important, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's not like one aspect that's more important than another aspect. So whatever you do, if you just try to do it well, then the other areas will sort of also flourish. That's my thought right now. I'll experiment with it and let you know how okay. it goes. So. <laughs> Will you come back next week and share Ozzy the Burrow? Oh, sure. That's I'd fantastic. love to. And now could yeah. you please tell your listeners how to get a copy of this fantastic book, One Dog Happy? Oh, it's on Amazon. Mm-hmm. That's where yeah. I got my copy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, you may get books? a previously signed one like Connie did. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful book. And I highly recommend it. And uh, I got to say, you'll come back next week. Sure. All right. Molly McNett, thank you so much. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Catalog Sales is the first story in One Dog Happy by Molly McNett. It previously appeared in New England Review and the Best American Non-Required Reading. The Guilty Pleasures podcast is made possible by Rockford Writers Guild, Rockford Area Arts Council, The Shumway, and you, our listeners. 
Subscribe to Guilty Pleasures on iTunes or Google Play, or download podcasts from our website, rockfordwritersguild.org. Email feedback to editor at rockfordwritersguild.org. Follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at Rockford Writers Guild and Instagram and Twitter at Guilty Pleasures. Thank you for listening. This is your producer, Jesse Koontz. Now go write. Hello, Molly. <laughs> <laughs> sure.